0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah, and I am the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. And I'm joined by co-host Zach Diamond. Zach, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. It's a busy time. We're inching closer and closer to the new year. And we're I'm excited to chat today a little bit about sort of what we can think about moving forward and a path forward beyond 2020. So today, i um, We're going to approach the podcast a little bit differently. Zach is going to take the lead on really crafting the questions and driving the discussion around how we can think about moving forward um, as educators, as school and district leaders, and as a community um, as we transition into 2021. And Zach, why don't you go ahead and take it away and start kind of sharing a little bit about your thinking and how you want to uh, approach this discussion?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, The reason that I wanted to ask some of the questions on this one is because I, you know, I sort of consider that i on this podcast when I am on it i 'm sort of in the position of a teacher more than you and Kate um, who are the sort of main uh, modern classrooms co hosts right um, and so I am unclear, I feel uncertain about twenty twenty one and so i just have i have lots of questions I think teachers have lots of questions, and so you know I know that modern classrooms has plans I know that modern classrooms has benefited me this year and so I just want to talk and ask you questions about how you know how you're planning to support teachers moving forward.
0: Yeah no and I'm excited to discuss this with you and and frankly we may have some answers but certainly do not have all the answers. Um, I think that's impossible at the moment but I'm excited to kind of field some of these questions and I know you always have a very, very good temperature check on what it's like to be a teacher at the moment because you're a teacher at the moment. So um, I'm ready to chat about sort of what there is to come and, and kind of discuss what you think some of our plans are um, and how we're approaching the moment.
1: Yeah. So I guess let's dive into these. The first question, I, I guess the first question I had is sort of very broad, um, but you know, getting to the end of a year, it's always a time to sort of reflect and look back and look forward. And obviously 2020 has been kind of a wild card um, in terms of reflection and, and growth and, and what have you. But, you know, the in a lot of ways, the word and the idea of 2020 have sort of become this like buzzword that has stood in to signify all the stuff that's happening, right? But it's not going to end in January, where I think that some of the biggest challenges are still yet to come in terms of returning to schools. And so I'm curious what challenges you foresee as we begin this transition back into in-person learning sometime in 2021?
0: Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's a few challenges that everyone I think should be and already is thinking about at sort of every rung of the education system. I mean, the first is is handling the moment. And obviously we're in the heat of the challenge here. Um, The virus has not gone away. Uh, Schools are going to be balancing a mixture of distance learning, in-person, hybrid, and everything in between for some time. And I think one of the biggest challenges that folks will need to think about is how quickly this school year may sort of end and experience a broad variety of fluctuations in what learning will look like, and then how rapidly folks are going to need to prepare for the following school year. And hopefully, that following school year will be in-person learning in large in large part. And that kind of leads to challenge number two. So, I think challenge number one is this idea of, of feeling rushed. Like, how do you survive the moment? How do you make sure learning is sustained and everyone is kind of staying socially, emotionally, and as stable of a place as possible as well as physically healthy? But then once you make it through there, there's not that much time to think about what schooling and teaching and learning needs to look like in the following year. And I think if there's one thing that's undeniable about what's transpired, it's that there's never going to be a time that I think I can remember where there's going to be a greater diversity of both learning levels and social emotional needs of students walking back into classrooms when we can eventually return back. And that fundamental idea that, you know, what does it mean to be a student in fifth grade math? Right. Once upon a time, theoretically, we could have thought that that meant that you're ready for fifth grade math skills. And we've all known as educators and as as school and district leaders and as community leaders that that's just not actually true. Right? Kids come into class with a broad diversity of learning levels. Some kids are multiple grade levels behind, whatever that actually means, and some are multiple grade levels ahead. But I think that disparity in needs, um, you know, just the fundamental reality that some kids maybe had a wonderful experience, kind of navigating the remote and distance learning space while others barely were able to access content and were dealing with immense amounts of trauma, we can't we can't treat those same two students uh, the exact same in a classroom. It just doesn't make any sense. It won't serve their needs appropriately. So really problem solving and thinking around how we can better differentiate to students' academic and social-emotional needs moving forward is going to be critical. We just cannot fall back to traditional practices when the next school year starts, we have to move forward and think hard about what it means to actually cater to our students' needs um, effectively. And I think that's going to be the biggest challenge and is the biggest urgency, certainly on my mind.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that I mean, as a teacher myself, I I feel very confident that the self pacing in the modern classrooms model is gonna is gonna really help me with that. You know, it's I've talked about this before on the podcast. The 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 way that differentiation is just built into the pacing and I can, you know, use the data from the pacing tracker to see who needs support. I think that that's just knowing that I have that part of the model to fall back on is really, is really comforting to me. You know, I'm also curious in terms of the social emotional needs that you mentioned, you know, people have been away from basically away from each other for so long. I'm, you know, how do you see return, the return to the classroom in terms of interactions, uh, students, you know, being with their friends again? And how can we make the space for them to, to socialize in the classroom?
0: Yeah, you know, well, first of all, I think the first thing that needs to happen is we need to create a world where teachers are able to connect with students individually in small groups fast, The only way you can figure out students' needs is to have real conversations with them. You can't really pull together where your students are at and how you need to support them best when you're sort of in this like whole group direct instruction setting. It's just really hard to get a temperature check on the variances of of kids' social-emotional needs and academic needs and ultimately... You see a lot of disengagement in those moments and you're really fixated on sort of behavior management and keeping things in check, which I know you talked about as well. And then also creating the space for students to organically interact with each other. To me, that really requires not overstructuring the learning environment, letting students drive those discussions, facilitating time and space in the classroom that isn't fixated on content necessarily, but more fixated on just kids re themselves in a learning environment, navigating, discussing, and collaborating with teachers and their peers is going to be critical. Um, there's going to be a temptation because of sort of the, the fear of lost learning time to just completely ram content into kids' brains, right? This, like, sense of urgency around, oh, no, what are we going to do? Kids have, quote-unquote, fallen behind academically, and we need to address that immediately. The problem is that's sort of a reverse approach to actually meeting just human beings' needs, right? The first thing you need to focus on is, do you feel safe? Do you feel comfortable? Are you able to communicate with your teacher openly and honestly? Are you able to communicate with your peers comfortably? That has to happen before a kid learns a math skill or something about history or writes their first essay. And I think really creating the space for a lot of one-on-one and small group time in the classroom is the best way to push that forward.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. It echoes what I was thinking. I mean, that urgency that you mentioned is, I think that putting aside the pandemic, from the earliest days of modern classrooms that I was a part of it before the pandemic, that was something that we were already working to try and minimize that urgency, that feeling of pressure and urgency in the classroom. Right. And, and so, you know, now I think there's actually, it's more urgent that we let kids, you know, talk to each other and talk to their teachers in a way that's not so content driven all the time. Um, And so, yeah, I, I really feel like we agree on that one. Absolutely. Are you hearing narratives that concern you about, about the future of education, and are you are you hearing that that urgency is creeping in? Are you hearing that?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I've run across a variety of narratives that I, I tend to either disagree with or find somewhat uncomfortable. I think you know, first is the the exercise of playing the blame game, uh, particularly around this idea of quote unquote learning loss, which I continue to find to be sort of the wrong framing because I don't really know what learning loss technically means because we've known students have had, you know, very diverse learning levels forever, right? When I was in the classroom, I was teaching a mixture of students who quote unquote tested on a fourth grade math level, sitting next to kids who are testing on, you know, a college level math level. So I think what's more important is forgetting this idea of blame game and how much learning loss happened and whose fault was that and who did things right. And just understanding that everyone tried their best. We're navigating a crisis that is incredibly challenging to work through. And the focus does not need to be on what was lost, but where folks are at now and how do they need to be best supported. And I'm sort of, I've been a bit exhausted by seeing the amount of discussions that are fixated sort of on what has happened and not what we need to do moving forward. And that's problematic because we won't have that much time to plan moving forward. It's just going to be quick, right? Who knows when the vaccine's going to be distributed? Who knows when folks are going to go back to the classroom? But sooner than I think we think, the summer's going to be around the corner, and then we're going to be going back into buildings uh, as business as usual, hopefully. And it's during that time that we need to really think critically about how we prepare students uh, appropriately. I think the second piece is just a, a, a bit of an over obsession with sort of the, how education is going to change. It's not necessarily that I, I think this is, you know, bad or good, um, a, you know, a good narrative or a bad narrative or accurate or inaccurate. I just generally think that it's important to remember. And I think what we've learned during this time is in person learning is critical to student growth. Um, Yes, there are some online learning dynamics and some structures in the virtual space that are really powerful and impressive. Um, And in some cases, and for some groups of students and communities, hybrid and online learning is the way to go. But for the large bulk of kids, uh, in-person learning is where it needs to to happen. And for teachers, that's where you're able to thrive and really do your best work. So any sort of narrative that suggests that somehow uh, this has taught us that Of virtual learning, remote learning, or hybrid learning is a better alternative to in-person learning, I I find a bit silly and I don't think is is a healthy way to approach how we're going to be moving forward. Ultimately, what we need to do is continue to teach students in person, build those relationships, but create learning environments that are designed to differentiate to students' needs and that honor the unique needs of students, both academically and socially and emotionally.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that both of the two points that you made sort of echo that, that misconceived framing of the of the idea of learning i think that you know in my grades that i've given this year what i've seen is that this whole distance learning experience has really just shown a light on inequities and and learning gaps that were already there. I mean, it didn't change anything. It just sort of amplified trends that we already saw. And so in my grades, what I'm seeing is that there are almost no grades in the middle now. It's low grades and high grades. And so it's much more polarized.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that, that piece of it all is also so critical for everyone to just be prepared for and think hard about how we can be supportive of our students who are basically farthest from access and opportunity during this time. I mean, those dynamics are, were so incredibly out of those students' controls, um, and they're going to return. And the last thing we should be doing to those students is make them feel inadequate for not being, quote unquote, on grade level or ready for the content or feeling like they need to now be rushed into learning new skills or they're going to be at a huge disadvantage. That is just the wrong approach, and it will destroy student confidence. Those kids are going to come to school Sort of anxious and uncomfortable about what they have not learned, right? They're not oblivious to what's transpired. They haven't been able to participate in school and the, in the way that they're used to for some time for issues that were out of everyone's control in many cases. Um, and we want to make those students feel as comforted as possible and feel like they are returning back to an environment where they can grow and continue to feel appropriately challenged. And we can run the risk of being sort of blinded by all the concerns around academic proficiency that we forget that those are real people, real students who were suffering and now need an opportunity to be able to succeed and need a clear on-ramp to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's change the focus a little bit to the teacher side of things and talk about this transition back into school. You know, the, the transition in March was very sudden, right? And I know personally for me, modern classrooms made my life just so much easier. But I think in general, modern classrooms was already very well set up to benefit teachers in a distance and hybrid learning scenario because of the blended learning piece, right? But now, as we're looking at maybe a slower transition back into the building, it's happening now. How do you think the model can similarly ease the transition back into in-person learning in the
0: building. Yeah. You know, what I I shared with a lot of folks early on in this process that the model is an in-person model that can stomach the blows of remote and hybrid instruction pretty well. So I think the benefit of making a transition back, whether you've been doing the model or you're about to learn the model, is it's a way to sort of leverage some of the core skills that you had to flex during this time in a powerful approach that will empower educators to work individually and in small groups to really figure out what's going on with students fast, right? That's what we want to do. We don't want to like over test and over assess and all that stuff. What we want to do is just make sure every teacher understands where kids are at, how they're feeling, what they're ready for, and then push them forward in that way. So I think the main thing here is both the model allows educators to kind of pull the elements of sort of tech-based instruction, remote and hybrid instruction, pull the parts that actually apply to the in-person setting and leverage those in the powerful ways that they can be used to use an educator's time more efficiently and support student needs more effectively while doing away with some of the elements that weren't particularly effective, right? The challenges of facilitating sort of live synchronous you know, lecture style experiences that weren't necessarily particularly engaging or the challenge of facilitating small group and individualized instruction through sort of Zoom rooms and breakout rooms that could be quite difficult. So I think ultimately what the model does is give educators a vision for what elements they can pull that are useful and powerful in creating a blended self-paced mastery-based instruction and what elements maybe aren't so useful about sort of tech-based instruction that were a necessity during the sort of remote and hybrid time.
1: Yeah, so... So then once we're back in the classroom, what do you think are some ways that teachers can really leverage this model to help students develop socially and emotionally and to develop those 21st century skills that we want them to
0: learn? Yeah, you know, these are some of the things that are so habit oriented, right? The ability to self-manage your time, the ability to be sort of a self regulated learner some of those executive functioning skills we got to kind of expect that some students haven't been able to flex those as effectively as they would have liked to or have really you know need some positive reinforcement around how to structure that so really really focusing on creating the scaffolds for kids to be self-directed learners setting daily goals and then attacking those goals giving them You know, the opportunity to self-pace, but also create the guardrails, knowing that some students might really struggle with that much autonomy and and time management, uh, is a really powerful piece to get kids to kind of build the confidence to be in the driver's seat of their own learning. And through that process, I think it'll be really valuable time, again, for educators to really diagnose student needs. You know, pausing and just checking in with every single student and getting a feel for, you know, what's scaring them about being back in the school? What are they excited about? Right? What are ways that they need to be pushed and what are ways that you need to kind of lay off? I think it's going to be a, a challenging experience to walk into a classroom and sort of look at all your students and say, wait, do I just like go back to business as usual or do I have to do something differently? And ultimately, I think the answer is a little bit of both. I think students are going to want the comfort of, of what business as usual looks like, but they're going to need A much more differentiated environment and a lot more one on one and small group time. And I think a lot of that needs to start with those social emotional 21st century skills. Reinforcing what it means to be a learner, um, to attack goals, to reflect, to stumble on mistakes and then grow from them is gonna be critical. And and then to also really be careful around sort of making assumptions about where students are at and what their learning looks like at the moment. When I think back to sort of the beginning of the school year, on any given year, it's sort of a nerve wracking experience to be an educator and just to know that you're getting incredibly unique and amazing people walking in your classroom and you may not know them particularly well, and you certainly may not know much of their background. That's exciting. I think what's challenging this year is, is some of the things that has transpired over, over the course of this pandemic are really jarring and overwhelming and may not be you know, realities that are very easy to handle in a classroom. And I think the last thing I'd say is really being ready, sort of school systems and school buildings and districts being ready to also leverage the support staff in the building in scenarios that are just bigger than your individual classroom.
1: Sure, sure, yeah. You know, one of my favorite things about this model just in general – is how I can spend time just chatting with kids and getting to know them. My own philosophy on this is like kids have these attitudes about school and it comes from the way that they're treated in schools. and so I, I just want to show kids that that school can be interesting and their teachers can see them as people, right? Um, but now, especially now, some you know I teach probably a hundred students that I've never met. You know, some of these students that haven't turned their cameras on, I won't recognize them. And even though I've been with them now for four or five months, and that's just very strange to me. And so I, I, I personally am going to take a lot of time to get to know the kids and, and deprioritize the content uh, wherever I can w- within reason. And, you know, I remember um, I had a principal. He would always say whenever we came back from winter break, you know, a two week break he would say you have to reteach the routines you have to practice the routines again get back into it and now you know with a an entire year away from school i i wonder like what what will the routines look like what what are the routines now and and the point you made about sort of looking at the kids and feeling do i just go back to business as usual or or do i you know, do I do something different? I, 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 I don't know personally right now, and I'm curious to see how um, how schools handle that.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, it makes me think of sort of taking an asset-based approach to just teaching and learning versus a deficit approach. And, you know, this idea of gr- having grace and empathy, it's going to be very difficult to walk back into classrooms and, you know, see some students struggle in ways that maybe they didn't before and wonder why, and feel this pressure, you know, because accountability just probably isn't going away. So, you know, feeling these accountability pressures, and then these concerns with students about maybe not staying engaged or being unmotivated, and that causing folks to suddenly kind of inch closer to a deficit approach um, versus an asset-based approach of of thinking about students. I think it's going to be critical for all of us as we kind of take a look at what learning looks like when students go back into the classroom to make sure that we remember how long it's been uh, since kids were just in a normal, healthy, functional routine um, and give kids time to adjust. And the fear that I have is all this alarmism around what kids have lost academically is going to make folks so on edge that there's going to be a fixation on that and not on the fact that kids just need time to adjust to being back to students in a school building. That's going to take time. And we can't rush that process. Uh, Ultimately, one of the things I loved about being a teacher is I could get a million directives from principals and superintendents, but kids decided how the learning would go. And if kids weren't ready for certain things, then we weren't ready for it, and there was no alternative solution. And if kids needed more time, or if kids needed additional support, um, we were they were going to get that. And I think that really responding to the needs of students and getting a temperature check on where kids are at are going to be is going to be really important. And also being aware that no one actually knows the solution, right? I think the Modern Classrooms Project presents a really viable approach to teaching and learning, but when it comes to setting expectations and accountability structures and pacing and all that kind of stuff. No one actually knows what that's going to look like. And it's going to be very, very different for different school communities and grade levels and content areas. So there might be a directive, there might be a demand, there might be an expectation, but don't let that drive what actually happens in the classroom. Let the students drive what happens in the classroom. And that's going to be hard to remember when, you know, the beginning of in-person learning is happening and there's a, there's a lot of energy, angst, excitement and nerves around sort of what's going to be covered and what needs to be done next. And and I think that's something that everyone is going to have to pay close attention to. Everyone from superintendents and, and, and state leaders all the way uh, down to our students themselves need to, to make sure that they are aware that things are new and they're going to be navigating a brand new environment.
1: Yeah. and But I also think in some ways they are new in that there's there's a pandemic, we've never had that before. But in a lot of ways, it's the same problems, it's that same pressure, it's that same urgency, just much, much, much more now. This actually transitions pretty nicely into my next question for you. A lot of the issues that we had when we were in business as usual, school, in person, what we were basically used to, right? A lot of those practices have now sort of been thrown into question. A lot of the problematic Aspects of those practices were exposed by the pandemic and by distance and hybrid learning. So, I guess my, my next question is: I'm curious how you see modern classrooms' projects' role in reimagining in-person education now that we've been through this transformational experience and questioned these assumptions about school and about learning. And how can teachers leverage the model and its and its principles to leverage the positives of what we've seen in distance and hybrid learning and, and this entire experience?
0: Yeah, you know, I I think through any crisis, you create innovative solutions. Um, and we push people to think in innovative ways about problems maybe that they hadn't addressed in the past. An enormous amount of educators are digging into technology in ways that they never did before. And a lot of those core traditional practices, like live lectures, uh, extensive direct instruction, you know, fixed-paced learning, got challenged and didn't work in a lot of different ways during distance and remote learning. So on one hand, we can reflect on the ways that it didn't work. But but on the other hand, we can use that as an opportunity to say, this is the time to make some of these core shifts in teaching and learning, because it's most needed. I, I kind of think about it as, you know, pre COVID-19, our model was a really cool and powerful way to improve teaching and learning in the classroom. But a lot of schools, districts and educators didn't necessarily feel like it it had to be in their classroom. It didn't necessarily feel like they had to come up with a solution to sort of fixed-paced learning and live lectures. And depending on the setting you're in, maybe teaching and learning was going just fine and you felt comfortable with it that way. Moving forward, I think everyone is going to know the problem in front of them. They're going to know that kids have such diverse learning levels. They're going to know that they can't walk in to the classroom and just start teaching lesson three of what is in the textbook or the curriculum and assume that kids are prepared. And what we hopefully will provide educators with is an actual blueprint to innovate in the classroom that isn't reliant on some external structure. Because ultimately, I don't think school schedules are going to change much. I don't think, you know, kids are going to be moving from class to class, not based off of their actual age, but instead based off their skill level, right? I don't think those radical shifts in teaching and learning from a structural standpoint and a systematic standpoint are actually going to happen. I think generally speaking, folks are going to return to school buildings and schools are going to look quite similar and schedules are going to look quite similar. So what has to happen is educators, as always, are going to need to be the leaders of the innovation educators are going to need to be the folks in the classrooms that are doing the creative and powerful things to allow them to differentiate to student needs. And we just provide a real blueprint for doing that in your classroom, regardless of if a colleague is doing it, regardless if your school or district is choosing to adopt it, you know, school or district wide, you as an educator can use our model as a true blueprint to create some change in the classroom. And it's the type of change that we need to see to meet students needs moving forward. It really isn't an option.
1: Yeah, uh, I definitely think one thing specifically, uh, is the accountability aspect and you know the self-pacing and, and the pacing in general, putting more responsibility on the student. I think that that is something that has sort of been stress-tested during the pandemic. Even teachers who aren't using the modern classrooms model are now relying on kids more right, to get their own work done because we're not there in the classroom with them. And I, I personally, I feel like the model, if it doesn't motivate the kids more necessarily, although in some ways it does... Uh, we could talk about the public pacing tracker. We can talk about wanting to stay on pace, knowing that there is a pace. But even if it doesn't, it gives me the data to see who's struggling in a much clearer way and and where I can be be more supportive.
0: And one of the things you know we talk about all the time is this idea of customization, right? Right. We believe deeply in the importance of educators customizing the model. There is no right way to do the model. There is no one way to do the model. And I think one thing that I'm very excited about our model and I I really hope educators use effectively is the ability to tinker with it and customize it as you assess what's going on in the classroom. And I think that's really challenging in a when you use a traditional approach to teaching and learning, right? When you use a traditional approach like I did for many years and sort of walk into the classroom and it's lesson three of quadratics today and you start going over it, if that's not landing well with students, like, Your body temperature goes up. You're like, this is a disaster. This isn't working. Kids are disengaged. You go home and then you kind of think like, okay, do I just like reteach it again? Do I just like move forward and pretend like nothing happened? You know, that is a very restrictive environment for teaching and learning. It doesn't actually allow you to make very many pivots, both live in the classroom and moving forward with your curriculum and pacing. I think one of the cool things about our model is the degree with which educators have the power to customize and adjust pace and, you know, retweak what is a must do, should do and aspire to do or push deadlines a little bit later because you're noticing that students need more time. Right. That flexibility is really, really critical as we think about the unknown which is where students are going to be at, both socially, emotionally, and academically. We have less answers to those questions than we ever have before, which means we need more customized models that allow teachers to really make the pivots they, they see fit. Um, and I think that's a key piece that we need to think about moving forward. And it's also a reason why I think our model can be pretty powerful. The other thing I, I, I think you mentioned is you know some elements of sort of hybrid and remote instruction. You've said this a number of times, Zach, like, worked quite well. Right? There were there were some kids and oftentimes not the kids you would have thought, and I hear that from educators all the time. Yes. Thrived when they weren't in sort of a classroom environment that was maybe restrictive and exactly. you teaching and learning in one dimension. And it was when they had the freedom to be in the driver's seat and when they had sort of unrestricted time to learn and wrestle with ideas and tasks that they flourished. I don't think we should dwell too much on what went down in remote and hybrid instruction because as a lot of folks have said, it was really emergency instruction. But I think what we need to pull from it is what were some of those things that actually students thrived with? What were some of the elements of the learning experience in the remote and hybrid setting that was really powerful? You know, one is the fact that kids can be self-directed learners, you know, kind of eradicating that notion that, Kids might not be developmentally ready to be in the driver's seat, right? That's a silly concept. And all these kids across the country were doing the bulk of their learning without the teacher literally with them. Right? Uh, you know, another one is this idea that we want to pr- provide a, a safe space for kids to communicate with teachers and their peers. I heard so much this idea that the chat function was so powerful. I was I was just about to say that, right? And this is it's this idea that when you create a much more you know one-on-one or small group environment for a kid to express their feelings or ideas or thoughts you're more likely to get kids who maybe don't normally engage as much to engage and when we when i think about the in-person space it may not happen in, in the chat function but it can happen in those one-on-one and small group discussions right yep. and remembering that that's an opportunity for kids to really express themselves especially if expressing themselves in a larger setting wasn't particularly impactful and then the last thing i'd say too is like i hope educators especially educators who haven't necessarily dug into our model or similar models, ask themselves sort of what aspects of sort of the traditional direct instruction live lecture did anything over this sort of distance learning and remote space. And when I say that, I mean like really assess when you were sort of delivering 20 minutes of direct instruction and maybe students' cameras were off or they were disengaged. Was it actually doing much for teaching and learning? Was it driving mastery? Or was ultimately the most important part when kids got to work, right? When they were engaging in challenging problems, when they were writing, you know, their ideas down and when they were collaborating. And I think what most people have confirmed is that the real learning happened when they weren't compliantly sort of listening to something, but instead were engaging. And that means that when we go back into the in-person setting, that's what the bulk of the learning experience should look like.
1: I, I absolutely agree. I was going to say that actually, but you said it first, that, <laughs> um, the, you know, I don't have quite as clear a point of comparison because I was already teaching in the modern classrooms model and I was already doing this. But spending time on Zoom teaching, it really—I've—I've I've tried it. Um, it feels just very tedious, more so than lecturing. And I, you know, I don't like lecturing. <laughs> um, but I've had to refine the things that I do do in in the full group. And if I spend the time in the full group setting, just five minutes, you know, I. We open up Zoom. I say, okay, today the lesson that's on Pace is lesson three. Uh, I can see that most of you are still on lesson two, um, but I want to talk a little bit about lesson three or maybe lesson two. Um, and then that's it, right? That's my entire live class. Maybe kids ask me questions, and and they do. Like They'll chat me privately or they'll ask in front of the entire group, uh, not putting so much pressure on them to to feel like they have to be paying very, very close attention the entire time. I mean, I think this is, I do feel like this is just sort of a but it's part of the, the modern classrooms model anyway. Um, and I wasn't lecturing before we left school. Um, but really seeing how open kids are to engaging and to participating when I sacrifice the teacher time and, and elevate students time instead.
0: Right. And I mean, it's, this goes back to when we had interviewed a couple of teachers who were doing an incredible job down in Perth, Australia. And they had mentioned that, you know, what we what they wanted to do is just talk to the kids more. Yeah. And what they had realized was they were so often thinking about what their actions were supposed to be to be a good teacher, and not what students actions looked like to be successful learners. And I think one of the things that you know, happened during remote and hybrid instruction is you saw a lot of times where kids were engaging in actions that would drive their learning that weren't actually in line with what the teacher was necessarily doing, right? So a student may not be present during class or their camera might be off, they're not particularly engaged, but then they produce really high quality work. And that should challenge everyone's notion that somehow... The only way a student's going to learn is if a teacher delivers that information to them in a very clear way and then they go regurgitate to Like, that's just not a realistic way of thinking about teaching and learning. Ultimately, kids learn best when they're in the driver's seat and they're problem solving. So, I think really trying to isolate those times when, you know, educators realized, and, and we as, as, an organization realized that you know maybe a kid doesn't need that pure direct instruction. Maybe a, a particular lesson doesn't even need an instructional video, yeah. right? A kid can just kind of access content, learn, struggle, and then ask questions in individual and small group settings that really push forward understanding. And I think that's going to be a powerful shift.
1: Yeah, but you know, it's something else that I've that I've experienced is that when you when you can build trust with the kids and you know the two teachers from Perth I obviously edited the episode and I heard it and I loved everything they said and it really stuck with me that idea that we should be focusing on learning and not on teaching but you know I have I feel like I've gotten to a point with my students this year where they are comfortable enough to ask me to teach them like I've had this happen where the entire class chattered me to be like can you teach us this lesson. And they, every single one of them was asking me questions as I talked through the lesson, basically just reenacted the video on this, on, on the zoom call. And it's not because they don't like learning from instructional videos, right? It's because they have become comfortable in my class because of the, the low sense of urgency, the low pressure, the communal feeling of being in my class that not requiring those lectures lets them sort of feel and lets them relax a little bit. And it, it, I think it really motivates them to be more open and to ask questions and to participate in a group because they feel like they're part of a group. It's funny. I feel like I've totally come full circle. Like I had to earn their trust to be able to do that. And giving them those five minutes, sometimes we talk about video games, sometimes we talk about sports, whatever it is. And so this, you know, the idea of relationships and just being present with the kids, they build trust. You build trust with them and, and they'll be willing to listen to you.
0: I think one of the coolest things that I remember when kids got comfortable with the model is their openness and willingness to be honest with me um, made it a lot more easy for me to support their unique needs. Ultimately, I want to spend less time figuring out what their needs are and more time hearing what their needs are directly from them and then figuring out how I can cater to their needs. Right. And a lot of times, I think in education, we are doing a lot of trying to predict kids' needs and assume sort of to the best of our ability what their needs are as opposed to just having a really open line of communication with individual students. And part of the reason why is when you kind of put kids in a situation where they're in whole group instruction and can't really communicate one on one with their peers or with you as the educator, it's very difficult for them to express their actual thoughts and deliver their kind of feelings about how learning is happening and what they're struggling with. So they resort to just kind of following suit with what everyone else is doing and growing frustrated. So you actually have to teach a student how to be open and honest about what they think and show them that you're willing to respond if it's a a reasonable request. And I think that'll be something that's going to be really important moving forward.
1: Yeah, so I guess to close this out, talking about moving forward, um, we've obviously talked a lot about this coming year, 2021, and of course the coming school year. But I, I also... I'm wondering, uh, from an organizational perspective, what plans do you have beyond COVID-19? You know, the organization is growing. I keep getting the emails from Rob with all the interesting stuff that you all are doing. What long-term plans are there, putting aside the pandemic to close us out tonight?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Zach. And at its core, we want to empower as many educators as possible with our models so that they feel like they're able to to effectively meet the diverse needs of students in their classroom. And so, they also feel like they're growing professionally and feel like their job is sustainable. And we believe now more than ever that our goals as an organization are serving an urgent need. Teachers are hungry for new and innovative instructional models. They know better than anyone else how difficult it is to serve vastly different learning levels in the same room as well as social-emotional needs. And schools and Districts are looking for a blueprint for how learning can look moving forward and we really provide that. So in many ways, our path forward is actually to stay the course and to double down on our work. And we have some exciting initiatives that we will be launching in the new year that we're extremely excited to share with educators and communities. We have an updated free course that will be coming out. That will be launching in January. It's going to bring new content and updates to the table for educators to access and for school and district leaders to access. We're going to continue to partner with schools and districts. We already have about 35 school and district partners. And we're continuing to partner with more and more as school leaders and district leaders fund educators' journey through our virtual management program so they can learn the model in full, get the support that they need from folks like Zach, uh, so that they can then launch a modern classroom of their own. And we're most excited to partner with schools and districts around our summer institute, We'll be launching a summer institute, and we're hoping to train between 800 and 1,000 educators this summer through a combination of our virtual mentorship program and a series of live sessions hosted by experts. And that will really create the structures necessary for educators to then launch their own modern classrooms in school year 21-22, when hopefully kids are returning back to the building. And that really big, diverse need from the student end is going to be met by our instructional model. And lastly, but arguably most importantly, we want to continue to listen to Spotlight and Elevate educators. We believe deeply that this organization is Generally run by the educators in the classrooms, they're the folks that are innovating. They're the sharing the incredible work that they're doing, and we're then spotlighting it and giving folks a voice to then empower other educators to innovate in similar ways and customize it to their own unique communities. Which is why one of the ma- which is one of the many reasons we actually launched our Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator Credential. You know, we've received an extraordinary amount of applications by our December thirty first deadline. We're so excited to review those and credential educators and spotlight these folks who've been doing incredible things in their classroom, whether virtually, hybrid, or in-person over the course of the last few years, and now are being elevated to that distinguished status, and a portion of those folks will then become mentors and be able to support other educators across the country as they learn and implement our model. And lastly, we just can't wait for all the teachers to be back in the classroom when it's safe, because that's when this model is at its best. It's when teachers and students are really seeing the biggest benefits, and we're just anxious for that to happen sometime in 2021.
1: Yeah. It's, it's incredible how the organization is growing. I'm watching it. I'm, you know, I'm pretty involved with the organization, obviously not to the extent that you are. Um, but just as a mentor, I'm learning from the, you know, 10 to 12 mentees that I have at a time. I can't imagine how much knowledge you all are soaking in. It must be incredible from all the teachers, all the schools.
0: Well, and we learn from folks like yourself as well. I mean, it, it's so interesting. I I always was frustrated as an educator with feeling like the professional development that I was receiving wasn't in tune with where I was at mentally, um, emotionally, you know, or just pedagogically, right? There seemed to be this wide disconnect. So one of the things we hope to do well, and we think we're doing pretty well now, and we want to continue to reinforce is to just be responsive to teachers. And what I always tell folks on this podcast, and when I meet with educators, please just articulate to us what you need. And we will try to cater to your needs. The educators are the lifeblood of our education system. They are the folks that really create the learning environments that are most impactful. And they are the folks that are, you know, spearheading almost all the innovation. And we provide a blueprint for for a way to folks a way for folks to continue to innovate in the classroom, but ultimately we want to hear from educators so we can cater to their needs most effectively. And that's what I think excites me most about the work that I get to do is I know that what we're doing is really steering a ship. But the the true drivers of the ship are the educators in the classrooms.
1: Yeah, you know, listeners to the podcast will have heard you and Kate say this, and even Rob, when he was on, that teachers drive the innovation. You know, it doesn't minimize the hard work that you all have done as an organization to say that teachers adapting the model, taking pieces of the model are really driving change, driving educational revolution in their classrooms through their creativity with the model. You know, I myself, as a teacher, kind of under the umbrella of modern classrooms, you've seen my classroom. I'm not teaching the model, just wrote the way that you taught it to me. You know, I kept some things, I adapted some things, and I scrapped some things. And the things I'm seeing from my mentees as well. You know, teachers are so creative and they're coming up with so many cool and different ways of of using the blueprint that you're giving them. And that's where the incredible things are happening. It's not the same everywhere. It's so flexible. And I think that really speaks to the incredible work you've done as an organization and that you'll continue to do, that teachers can take that blueprint, as you've called it, and innovate in such incredible and diverse and inspiring ways.
0: I hope so, and, and thank you for the kind words about that, and and you are a core element of it, and everyone listening is as well, and we're just excited about the opportunities that will come in 2021, um, and we are just always thrilled and excited to continue to see the incredible work that educators are doing. We've received a ton of applications for the Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator Credential, and it's just so awesome to read these applications and see the creative instructional videos and the dynamic pacing trackers and all the different and creative ways folks have taken the model and run with it in their unique settings. Everything from counselors to adult educators to university professors um, and everything in between. It's been super, super cool. So I'm extremely excited. Uh, You know, it's certainly a somber time. and, And I think all of us are anxious for when we feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel for us to return a little bit back to normal. Um, be able to be in the same buildings with students. We as a staff are anxious to get into classrooms and actually watch teachers in action because that's some of our favorite part of the work. Um, So we're hoping and anxious for that to happen in the not so distant future. Yeah. All right, Zach. Well, I think that about does it for today. Hopefully uh, this particular episode Gave some exciting and energizing things to look forward to um, during this challenging time, uh, and also provides sort of some comfort that I think the challenges that folks foresee and are or facing are similar across school districts, across classrooms, across teachers. Um, and ultimately, there is a path forward. It's going to be challenging, and, and we're going to do our best as an organization to support educators through that journey. You can always learn our model at our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. Our mentorship program is always available to educators in school and districts that want to partner with us. We are planning to do a fairly large uh, cohort of educators this summer. So if you're a school district or a community um, looking to actually get some training for teachers during the summer in that structured mentorship program, now is the time to potentially reach out and pursue that opportunity. And the Distinguished Modern Classroom Educator, uh, those of you who applied, we'll make sure to, to tell you whether you've received the credential or we'll be revising your work by the end of January. And for those of you who are intrigued to apply, but aren't quite ready, just know that we'll have many more application deadlines coming for you to apply for that credential, and then potentially uh, become a mentor, just like Zach is uh, supporting educators across the country through this journey. So it's been wonderful. Again, chatting with you, Zach, it's always a joy uh, discussing these core concepts with you. So thanks for joining today. Absolutely. I loved it. Thank you. And I hope everyone has or has already had a wonderful new year and holiday break. More to come in 2021. Bye, everyone. Bye bye.